1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. We have a fascinating, uh, far-reaching publication today, certainly relevant to religions of ancient India and also beyond. Uh, Today um, we'll be speaking about a book called Religion and Myth in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, you heard that correctly, Religion and Myth in the marvel cinematic universe and i'm speaking with the author of this 2021 mcfarland publication dr michael nichols who is professor of religious studies at martin university uh, michael welcome to the podcast thank you so much for having me the question that i usually begin with is perhaps all the more pressing in your situation which is how on earth did this start up how did you get interested in this where, where did this book come from
0: a, a great question. Um, well, I guess, full disclosure at the outset, uh, I am a, a Marvel fan and have been since I was a kid, but at no point did I intend really to, to write a, a book about uh, that topic, especially during my graduate studies and, and on, although I have engaged with popular culture. Um, I suppose just, the... Go ahead.
1: Sorry, just uh, I couldn't help but to quip that many a Mahabharata and Ramayana fan growing up did not intend to study it professionally but here we are <laughs> so sure. it's understandable
0: yeah I, I suppose that's not an uncommon thing in scholarship. You, you get drawn in naturally to the things that you, you have a passion for i think inevitably right so um, I, I guess the the seed of it started when i was working on uh, on my first book which is a, a revision of my my dissertation about uh, the buddhist figure of mora um as, as a taking a break from that endeavor I went to see one of the marvel films uh, the 2012 avengers film and during the course of that film the audience and this was a, a rural indiana theater uh, and was, was fairly packed which was unusual in and of itself but as the characters began to appear on the screen together since this was the first film that had a crossover a lot of the different marvel characters when, for instance, Iron Man and Captain America are shown on the screen together for the first time, there was applause in the theater. And then later in the film, when all of the at that point in time, six Avengers were on the screen together, again, there was an outpour of uh, this emotion and applause. And so I maybe have been attending the wrong movie theaters, maybe the wrong movies, but that was an unusual occurrence for me to have that kind of audience reaction. And that started to make me think that perhaps there was something there, something that was landing with people in a way that was very emotional and there was a a connection or something deeper potentially was being channeled there. And as I was finishing up that first book, I did end with a chapter about Mara and particularly North American and British popular culture. And those moments kind of came back to me as I was getting into the popular culture literature. And then as the Marvel series concluded its first several phases in 2019, the same sort of emotional theater reaction made me wonder, is there something deeper here? And so I started to look at the Marvel films from that that guise of, is there something kind of deeper religious and mythic there? And I started to investigate for the book, and that's what, from my perspective, I discovered is that it does resonate on those lines with traditions from around the world. And so I very deliberately decided that I would look at not segments of the Marvel films or a particular Marvel film against one particular religious narrative, although you can't do that, and there are places in the book where I do do that. But if I wanted to see if it fit into the wider pantheon of world mythologies in general, I needed a broader comparative scope. So that's why I took the perspective that I did in the book and found that there were different themes throughout the Marvel films that one could set aside themes from other religious traditions. And that's why I kind of dug out the, uh, the analysis that I did.
1: Well, the, the, the enterprise that you describe, um, as alarmingly familiar, I'll share something, um, I'll probably say a little bit more in this podcast than I do in most. Uh, uh, but in 2010, I believe in 2010, I finished my master's degree. Um, yeah, I did it part-time. I was working. I was a bit of a late bloomer, shall we say, but I finished my master's. And I was working, uh, I was teaching at the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies. I was teaching this one course and while I was doing that, I was um, I had in mind to prepare a core an original course for the following year. It ended up being a very successful course. Um, at the same time, uh, I had some some friends say uh, they were just they were amazed that I hadn't seen Star Wars. I hadn't seen uh, Lord of the Rings. I, I you know I had a very probably objectively deprived childhood, but very very formative uh, in many ways. Um, And they said, we'd love your take on this. So here I am, you know, in my early 30s and watching Star Wars for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And I was gobsmacked at how much religious symbolism, uh, mythological material was in there. Same with um, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Same with uh, the one world I was familiar with from childhood was the Chronicles of Narnia. I used to love those books in grade school. And so... I so said, this is really fascinating. Maybe it's me, but it seems that um, religious mythological archetypes have found a home in these in these blockbuster sci-fi fantasy films. And so I decided to pitch this as a course. It was called Myth and Meaning. It was um, a course that I taught every year I was there. I've recently left uh, to teach continuing studies at uh, the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. And... Uh, was, I, just, I set up the course to be like, okay, well, the first half of the course we will look at ancient Near Eastern, maybe Indian, maybe biblical, mythological narratives. And the second half of the course we will look at these, these universes. We looked at um, Lord of the Rings, um, um, Star Wars, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. At some point, I folded in a bit of Harry Potter. Didn't discover Game of Thrones until much later, but I wish I had discovered it earlier. And in researching for the course that I had already pitched, that I discovered the work of this figure called Joseph Campbell, who, after doing two degrees, I never heard of, <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, okay, maybe I can, this seems like compelling, you know, it's not above reproach, but it's, it seems quite useful. He's he's stumbled across a, a theoretical model I can use as shorthand rather than reinvent the wheel uh, to make this argument. And then to my astonishment, I pitched this course without even re- knowing this, uh, George Lucas used um, You're With a Thousand Faces to finish a script for a New Hope. I'm like, okay, I'm not nuts. There's something here. Mm-hmm. The academics can argue about it, fine, but the myth makers and the the, 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 the movie makers, they, they know what works, right? And so I can not help but share the, the parallel between my own uh, earlier comparative mythological study and, and your own journey. More about you now, unless about me. Um, <laughs> what, what does the book argue? What are you showing as the main gist of the book?
0: It's the, the main gist of the book I might go back to some of the, the comments that uh, you, just, you just alluded to is that you can find within these films, these um, perennial ideas, and you can categorize this film as myth in a lot of ways. I think that's one, one primary takeaway. Uh, and when I use the term myth, I'm using it a lot uh, figures like Alan Dundas and uh, Robert Elwood, just in this broad category of stories of God's heroes or exceptional superpowered beings whose narratives connect with perennial human concerns. And so when you look at it from that vantage, one of the takeaways of the book is that you find that in spades within these Marvel films. Uh, And as such, there's a platform there to sit this narrative alongside other world narratives and see what sorts of comparisons arise and what sorts of areas you can interrogate. Um, I think that one of the things that's especially profitable about that is that you can then maybe understand why there are these um, emotive reactions, why these stories are are so popular generation after generation, why they, they tend to and be reiterated and put on with new clothes, and I think your use of Joseph Campbell is, is very apt there. Is that you know, as as you mentioned, his work is not beyond reproach, but there is something there that fascinates people. I think he put his finger on that, and so the categories can be useful when you think about what you see within uh, within the Marvel films. and And one of the reasons why I focused on the the Marvel films as a text was that they went about constructing a cohesive narrative over these. 23 films, at least the 23 that I look at, that you're of course coming out with more and more all the time. But for that span from 2008 to 2019, uh, the directors and producers and the higher ups within the Marvel Studios are very deliberate about making sure there were links in the chain and that there were resonances and that was building to a conclusion. So you have something that you don't necessarily have within. Other comics properties is that there's a beginning, middle, and an end to this text, and it was considered one coherent narrative, and so it could be looked at in that way, perhaps like a Mahabharata or Ramayana.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to me how deeply resonant this book is with, I guess you would say, my previous queer. Although um, that was along, that was sort of a, a side gig alongside um, interpreting Indian myth professionally in my PhD and beyond, and uh, naively it took me some time to realize <laughs> that my um, indulgence in these archetypal narratives and continuing studies and what I was doing at the academy with the Devi Mahatmya, the Mabharata, the Ramayana, it took me a while to actually put them together in my brain, that these aren't as different as I originally thought. Um, uh, um, the, I mean, there's so many directions I could take this in. Uh, I do want to before I forget to mention, I do want to share that it was also impactful to me to see or understand or feel people react when Luke destroys a Death Star. And for me, it's clear, you know, today happens to be May the 4th, I believe uh, Believe it or not.
0: I was just uh, thinking of that as you were bringing yeah, that up. Uh, uh,
1: unplanned, uh, entirely unplanned. Um, 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 Michael was kind enough to reschedule. I wasn't feeling so, so well last week. I think out of about 110 interviews, he might have been the only one or two that we have to reschedule. But apparently the force is with us, so we can do it on May the 4th. <laughs> But it's so um exciting when Luke, is, Luke destroys Death Star or various other moments and it. The audience alights to a feeling of of triumph or exhilaration. They're moved. Um, and I don't mean this so literally, but uh, not so symbolically either. They're, it's a religious experience for many of them. And... I think it's compelling to understand like like what it i mean it sounds nerdy but even for those who aren't into into like even for those who are you know die hard you know um practicing jedi or 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 really into the lord of the rings you know when gandalf takes a stand and says i'm a servant of the secret fire you shall not pass it's 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 um it's electric Mm-hmm. It's it's more than dramatic flair. It's, it's 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 watching a dramatized archetype before your eyes, and there's such a response in your being um, that surely there's there's something going on in in uh, sci-fi fantasy um, hero narratives. It's um, beyond just telling a good story. I think, and, and I really do resonate with the idea that this is the modern world safe secular. Um, Repackaging of uh, the world's great religious themes.
0: Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that, and I think within the the Marvel films, the corollary for that experience that you're describing uh, is that moment in the uh, Avengers Endgame when uh, Tony Stark has taken the Infinity Stones himself and defeats Thanos's army, and in some uh, some media just released by Marvel, um, it was just yesterday, I believe, that is setting up their coming movies and properties. The, the beginning of that trailer for those new upcoming properties shows some of the highlights of their past. And that clip of Tony Stark with the Infinity Stones is what sets up the whole thing. And they actually film the opening night audience's reaction. And it's that same kind of electric, ecstatic, you know, transcendent experience of people standing up and cheering. As he does this, so there's this catharsis, I think, in all those films that really resonates with a kind of religious catharsis, uh, and I, I think your comparison to a, a safe secular sort of religious expression is very apt, very apt indeed. That it's it really repackages and remodels very very old ideas.
1: Well, it's it's um, sickening me some to come at this situation or the stance, I suppose, uh, not. Um, all scholars need be seekers, but the ones who are successful scholars and successful seekers, or uh, the, the spiritualist or philosophers in some way, they understand the limitations of both, and they also understand the ways in which the complementarity of each you know, for for to, for mapping what it means to be human, and that hair-raising, electrifying, triumphant, terrifying moment, like that experience what is that experience if not um, um the vishvarupa krishna's uh, terrifying cosmic form or moses before the burning bush or uh druga slaying mahisha in in the middle of the devi Mahatmya, you know a uh, a uh, uh, big dracarys from daenerys whatever you want to call there these moments that are just if you're remotely emotionally or spiritually plugged in they're larger than life and they are just beyond and so I would imagine for many, uh, prior to the age of Marvel comics and the big screen, uh, those moments were achieved uh, through religious storytelling or or mythological narration. Um, Just for those of you listening, I'm sure you know, you've heard enough of these podcasts to know that they're entirely unscripted. It just so happens that uh, this work came across my desk that's completely awakening love, a previous career of mine. Uh, new, so it's really, really fascinating. Um, more to the point of your your scholarship, why don't you take the audience through the structure of the book, and also beyond that, I want to talk about some specific um, uh, narratives uh, that you draw on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so the the book is structured and set out to follow the development of the. Marvel films. chronologically. Exactly. So uh, since they form a coherent narrative, I start with the beginning and go through uh, the middle and the end. Uh, so uh, with the, the phase one films and then follow with the phase two and then phase three from 2000 to 2019, uh, but along the way, the book is structured into different chapters that hit a particular religious theme and mythic theme that seems to help that part of the narrative hold together. So for instance, in the phase one, films, there is a great emphasis on the hero's origin stories, and I use a lot of theory about ritual and initiation to talk about what those are like and how those can resonate with those mythic structures. From there, we go into discussions of the hero and the monstrous, the particular villains that the uh, Avengers and so forth face, and how those then parallel different monsters, and villainous and evil figures that you find across world religions and world mythologies. The third theme that I delve into is about purity and pollution, which again is a cross-cultural theme, and you find that in the successive films within the Marvel Universe, where once the heroes have been introduced, there are following that certain problems and complications that arise. And these often take the form of what you would, from an anthropological and sociological point of view, look at as pollution and impurity, uh, oftentimes connected to the very powers that the heroes themselves possess. So there's a paradox there about what it means to be connected to um, the language that I use in some ways. It seems to be corollary to the powers that the heroes possess uh, is the sacred, or some way being touched by the divine is also problematic within context of one's connections to others from there we move into discussion of the morality of war where the heroes themselves begin to combat and fight with one another uh, where the tension that used to be deployed against an external other is then redeployed against an internal other and there are plenty of narratives across mythology such as the Iliad uh, the Mahabharata is a great example of internecine strife and the uh, it, it to me at least was striking how a lot of the conflicts within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, from that point of view, really paralleled and followed the structure of those particular world mythologies. From there, I spent a great deal of time looking at the the final two Marvel films within this first three phases, which particularly deal with the struggle with death and trying to deal with the inevitability of human mortality, which is of course a perennial. Religious steam. This within the the main villain of the first three phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Thanos, the personification of death. I compare Thanos with other symbols of death throughout the world um, from ancient Maya, uh, Hades in Greek mythology, Yama in India, Mara, of course, in Buddhism. And then the final struggle with death to try to overcome death's power, which is in itself a paradox that the heroes can't fully escape. They can overcome death in some ways but not in others and so that's kind of the, the note that the narrative ends on is the note that uh the book ends on so that's really kind of a quick overview of the way the the book is laid out following the story of these Marvel films from beginning to end and then punctuating it with these different themes that i think are especially pertinent and relevant to some sections of that narrative
1: since this This podcast will probably be hosted on the uh, New Books in Indian Religions podcast that I primarily host, although there's without question, uh, this will be posted to a number of other channels. Can you say a bit more about what your research tells us or shows us about narratives of South Asia?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, really quickly, there are different points in time when I do bring in the figure of Mara. Since uh, my first book was entirely about Mara, it's hard for me to get entirely away from Mara. which I guess is kind of a pun, since that's the role that Mara is supposed to do in in Buddhism, is the grasper of being. So I haven't fully escaped from Mara's grasp. Um, He's particularly, I think, a good comparison for some of these figures of death and figures of, of evil within the Marvel films, because... Uh, Just like Mara, these figures oftentimes have their henchmen uh, who are depicted in a much more grotesque way than they themselves, just as Mara has his army, which is far more gruesome and ghastly than Mara he himself is. And they also have this combination of death and desire, just like Mara does. So that's one example. Uh, Within Hinduism, one narrative that I come back to in the book again and again is the, the Mahabharata. First, for there's a particular film in the Marvel franchise, uh, Captain America Civil War, where the Avengers, who have been allies to this point, split into two different factions and have what ends up being a disastrous conflict with one another. That shows a, a, a degradation in their relationship and a conflagration that ends up having long-lasting consequences when they're then not able to reunite against later threats. And so I compare this with... the uh, the, the terrible war in the Kauravas and the Pandavas, and the ways in which the, the the practice of that war starts off uh, first with um, professions of honor and duty and fealty, and then degenerates into uh, almost anarchy and a renouncing of some of those former rules of combat. You find the same thing within the marvel films where it starts off as almost a kind of a jousting and almost a uh, a kind of play fighting then degenerates into a very bloody and terrible conflict two figures within one another particular film uh, black panther i thought were corollaries for the particular arjuna-karna rivalry you find within the on the figure of t'challa who is the black panther and his long lost cousin, um, Njadaka, who is also called Killmonger, seemed to fall into uh, figures like Arjuna, who has been part of the social system and has had the benefits of that social system, whereas Karna has been on the outside looking in and resentful as, uh, as a result. You find almost an identical structure between the two cousins, uh, Tachala and Njadaka. Njadaka, who has been um, exiled from the family line, the forgotten member of the family, who's raised in other circumstances and hasn't been the beneficiary of, of the loyalty that he feels he is owed. And he returns into the palace with a, a bloodlust for Kachala, just as Karna wants to exact his revenge upon um, on Arjuna. So that, I think, was, was an interesting interplay to see a very similar sort of dynamic arise within the Marvel films that immediately, in, in my mind, uh, reminded me of the South Asian narratives. Those are, I think, two of the big ongoing comparisons. Uh, there are also other places I think that would interest uh, scholars of, of South Asia. I, I make uh, discussions about purity and, and pollution codes and how they play into some of the symbolism you find within uh, the Marvel Universe. I talk about Hindu goddesses and a very brief mention uh, as a corollary with uh, the, the energy that the Shakti, that Hindu goddesses hold, and some of the uh, female superpower character to, to Captain Marvel seem to uh, exude. So those are the things I think immediately spring to mind that would be of interest to scholars of South Asia.
1: How do you account for the parallels that you see between um, 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 ancient mythic narratives and these modern uh, fantastic narratives, pun intended, fantastic, uh, otherwise put, uh, do these modern mythmakers? Uh, um, for me, there's no question that Tolkien's a mythmaker. That C.S. Lewis is a mythmaker. There's no, there's no question in my mind that uh, George Lucas quite consciously set out to make a modern mythology. So, uh, the the mythmakers of 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 these movies, did they um did they go and read ancient Indian myth? Like, how do you account for the, the, These parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's that's of course the I think quintessential question, and I don't know that there's a single. Answer. I think that it's probably a combination of both. A lot of these mythmakers are aware of at least some of the preceding mythologies. If you take you know, Tolkien, for example, was certainly aware of European mythology and patterned some of the events of his stories on earlier stories like Beowulf. This is one great example. Uh, and you know, George Lucas, being aware of Campbell's work, was trying intentionally to create a new mythology. Um, I think in, in some cases, some of these stories had to have been ones that the makers of the Marvel films were aware of, but I think that only gets you part of the way because at least in the study that I did, the resemblances were so vast and go across so many different corners of the world. That I think that it speaks to some of the universal issues that all cultures and all individuals eventually face. Most striking, probably, is that we all have to face up to our mortality. That's something that we're all in the same boat, no matter what time period or or culture that you that you live in. And so that is a dilemma that any mythology or any individual is is going to face. And so this is an example, another mythic take on that. The same thing with. other issues like how you interact with one's family the morality of war some of these timeless issues i think just reoccur and are universal human problems and so any mythology is going to deal with one or more of these universal human problems and i think that we shouldn't be surprised if we see mythologies popping up again and that deal with these issues because they're just part of what it means to be human
1: yeah that that really resonates um you know, when I, <laughs> as I mentioned, I did a couple of degrees at the University of Toronto and I literally never heard of Joseph Campbell. Um, then I, I soon learned that um, he's typically not acceptable as a scholarly source, but I was using him to teach adults who were quite interested in the courses and many of them um, were, were, you know, were reading his stuff when it was coming out in previous generation. And so um, it, as an academic, I would use Campbell potentially with s- some reservations, but more, I think, clarifications and more delimitations of his work. In terms of when I teach and coach and live and breathe, it's abundantly clear to me that um, the human condition isn't just society and culture and everything in the outer world. There is the, this, uh, the human condition is very much about, it's about our worldview, and our worldview is very patterned and our experiences help us to develop this innate pattern that's part of us and that's when i came across the work of campbell and in so doing really had a good look at jung for the first time i'm like i don't know if what they're saying is true but i know that this is the best um theorization i've come across or analog or this is the best way in which to talk about in terms of uh, of scholars to talk about patterns of human behavior patterns of the human condition. It's abundantly clear to me anyhow, that uh, we are more than just what we experience in the objective world. And there is something that you you find a piece of art from ancient Egypt or a different civilization. And certainly it's only going to be enriched if you begin to begin to understand how it was received and why it was crafted in that day. But nevertheless, for the beauty to shine through it's it's much more than a product of a specific unique culture or individual but i feel like i'm preaching to the choir not that i'm preaching anyhow um what what was your favorite aspect of this project or uh, conversely what what stuck out to you what, what were you surprised to learn
0: my favorite aspect i think was uh, it was certainly an energizing project. I will, I will definitely admit to that. And my it was, and I've I've loved all of the other publications that I've done in my first book, certainly. But it was it was a qualitatively different experience to work on this project, I think, because it did marry together that interest that I'd had since I was very young in these characters and with the professional world that I've lived in since being an adult. In ways that I hadn't anticipated, and so being able to think about that realm as a source uh, for my professional role was was really it wasn't something I had anticipated, and it was a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun to do to think about them from you know from a, a critical but also a creative way at the same time, and. I think that what I what I learned that I wasn't anticipating is that when I would talk about the project, uh, the enthusiasm that I would receive from people, which kind of demonstrated the the reach of it. Um, I, I enjoy the work that I did on Mara, but when I would mention that, people would kind of say, oh, okay, and kind of smile and nod, and that was the end of it. I would get a lot of follow-up questions and you know, genuine expressions of interest when I would talk about sort of Marvel and religion and myth. So I think that it's something that had a wider reach and... I wasn't expecting that. So it was the sort of project that I really looked forward to working on day after day.
1: And do you think the reach was simply the popularity of these narratives?
0: I think so. I think definitely so. And I think that it's, um, it really, you know, as we've been kind of throughout this conversation coming back to, it, it's something that speaks to people on a, a deeper level. And this isn't to say that there aren't other interpretations of, particular Marvel films, I don't know if one that looks at the whole span of all two dozen or so to this point, but there are particular interpretations of one or the other film, usually from a political angle. They talk about it as a reliving of post-9-11 American trauma and talking about how um, these superpower beings like a revivified United States military going out and, and refighting and re-winning 9-11 over and over again. Um, and I, that's an interesting interpretation. I think there's a lot to that. And I enjoyed reading that work. And so what I wanted to do was add to that and supplement to that. What, what is something that might account for that enduring popularity for that emotional response at the same time that would be a global thing? Because it's not just a popular in the United States. It's a global cinematic phenomenon. And why it would be popular with individuals who were frankly you know, not even born when 9 11 happened. And that's it, it speaks to something more, you know, something deeper, a little bit more universal. It hits some of these tropes, and these archetypes that go way, way into the past.
1: I, I, I've come to think of it as two orders of analysis, or that were at least anyhow, or two orders of, of, of reality to, that are both true in tandem. In that one, in my brain, is called the sort of sociocultural dimension. And the other one I call, or I think of as a psychospiritual dimension. And certainly is a, it's the case. I mean, the all of Narnia exists in a wardrobe in the countryside of the UK during World War Two, right? Uh, Ring of power, hello. We know what this is um, responding to or energized by on some level, without question. But I think I've said this in a lecture earlier in the week. I was saying um, stories that survive centuries and millennia don't do so because there's a shortage of, of human ingenuity and creativity in these cultures. How many stories end up on the cutting room floor every day? The ones that survive are the ones that remain relevant. And the Mahabharata, of course, is teaching us about ancient India and about Dharma and about uh, pretty much all things in it but no, the Mahabharata is teaching us about us. Mm-hmm. Mahabharata is teaching you about you. Star Wars is teaching you about you. Um, the aspects of you that are not tied specifically to a generation or a culture. And, you know, there's that. It's difficult because I find that it's easy to focus focus on one and de-emphasize the other much to your own peril because obviously a a narrative is a product of time and culture, obviously, without question. But the classics are obviously more. And if they weren't, no one would care about them for that long. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time... I don't know, I imagine that there are, I don't really have a sense to gauge whether, how seriously our colleagues take this line of inquiry or questioning. You know, I'd be interested in your thoughts in terms of, um, you know, people don't teach Joseph Campbell. As far as I can tell, he's not really taken seriously. And as I've mentioned, I think he needs, um, He, I think that he could be um, bolstered or corrected in certain ways but I really don't think he could be dismissed or should be. I'd be curious to know about your thoughts of that in terms of the state of scholarship on these sorts of narratives.
0: Yeah, so thank you for that question. I think that's one of the things that I was trying to accomplish in the book too, as maybe the introduction and then the conclusion point towards is to think about how these materials can be put alongside others and, and put within the pantheon of all the different narratives we do study, we do look at it. Um, and you know, I, I draw you know, slightly in you know, a couple different places on Joseph K. Morgan. I don't use his work throughout the, the book by any means, but I think that you're right, that there are definitely ways that you can still draw on a figure like him to think about some of the more universal aspects. And popular culture is popular for, for a reason. It gets that reaction for a reason. And I think that if we leave out those sorts of narratives from the categories of things we can talk about, then we'll become more and more remote, more and more removed from people's actual everyday experience and the things that people actually find interesting and talk about. So if one of the takeaways from the book is that we can look at Marvel properties as a mythology, and that gives us a whole other world that we can explore or potentially humans' religious expression or ways that humans find meaning. And it then en- enlarges the scope of our field, I think, to encompass more of, of people's actual experience.
1: Is there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on?
0: Well, it is, as, as we've kind of gotten into, it is a, a really broadly comparative work. Um, that is something that does swim upstream against the usual tendency of scholarship these days and so scholars who are interested in broad comparison i think find this book interesting um though it is more interdisciplinary at other points in time when there is something that i think is a psychological theme i draw upon psychologists of religion uh there's anthropology i use figures like mary douglas um and so it is something i've tried to draw a lot upon and some of that goes back to the teaching environments that I came from prior to working at Martin University. I taught at uh, St. Joseph's College in Rensselaer, Indiana, which had an interdisciplinary, before unfortunately the college closed, I had an interdisciplinary general education program that I was thankful to be a part of. And so being able to draw upon all of those different fields and different disciplines to think about a particular narrative or text is something that I learned from teaching in that program because of the wide-reaching connections we had with colleagues from a lot of other departments. So I'd like to think that that core way of looking at things can kind of live on a little bit in this book. Um, yeah, those would be some of the things that I would, I would mention also about the, about the work and about who might find it interesting. Um, I hope there are a lot of people who would be able to find something useful and entertaining about the text, if nothing else.
1: Uh, With that question, a number of folks, whether fans of um, modern narratives, uh, whether people interested in religion and popular culture, I mean, there's, there's certainly, certainly is appeal. Um, commenting on what you just said, I think it's very important personally. I think humanities is about human experience, as obvious as that sounds, that gets lost in the shuffle and that experience is not amenable to uh, fitting into one paradigm or one discipline or one methodology. And so when people get together study human beings from these different aspects of the human experience and they have meaningful conversations you're only going to have a more complete vision or sense um of human experience and so mary douglas i mean i'm convinced that she wrote her final book for the sake of my dissertation her final book wasn't ethnography at all she was able to figure out that um ancient narratives from the iliad uh, from the bible were composed in this thing called ring composition and that that form that compositional strategy was crucial for exegesis it was a hermeneutic strategy on behalf of the, its authors or redactors. I come across this jewel of hers that I'm convinced she, she writes for me before she leaves this earth. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The same thing applies to the Devi Mahatma, the great goddess myths of ancient India. Cool. Do I need to answer the question of whether or not you know an author of the Iliad traveled to India? at some point, (laughs) left a tradition of ring composition? I don't know, I have no idea. We'll never know. The point is that ring composition crops up across the ancient world in a very meaningful way for the stories that have stood the test of time. And it's ludicrous to think that's coincidental. And so I just wanted to comment on the power of interdisciplinarity with respect to what I view as a more robust approach to the humanities—enough for me for one day. Before we say uh, we say goodbye for today, just tell us: Are you still working on this topic? What are you What are you currently working
0: on? I'm currently working on a couple of different things. I'm working on a couple of articles. One about Buddhism and sickness in the wake of the the pandemic. Um, Uh, Some comparison between Buddhism and Hinduism in terms of the the concept of wilderness, um, forest, and the the dangers therein. Um, But I'm keeping my eyes on the Marvel properties that continue to come out, the television shows, as well as the upcoming Phase 4 films, because you never know. There might be something else uh, that I could uh, write on about that. I don't think I'm done quite with that yet.
1: you're keeping your your eyes as in your your scholarly eyes, but certainly your entertainment eyes are already on them. So that's
0: good. Absolutely, without a doubt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you very much for appearing on the
0: podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation
1: as did I. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Michael Nichols, Professor of Religious Studies at Martin University on his brand new 2021 publication, Religion and Myth in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Until next time, uh, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the role of mythological narratives in the modern world. Take care.